BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. This is a podcast that explores the themes of self and community healing, whether as an artist, curator, collector, or admirer. I am your host, Dr. George Jesus Mesa, a Chicano clinical psychologist with a passion for promoting and preserving Chicano Latinx art. I'm working in conjunction with our partners at www.latinoarte.com an online marketplace that showcases and promotes the work of Chicano Latinx artists throughout the United States. Our guests for the podcast will include celebrated artists, collectors, curators, and influencers who will share their experiences and perspectives on Chicano Latinx art as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Joey Terrell is a formative figure in the Los Angeles-based Chicano art movement and in AIDS cultural activism. In his art, he explores the intersection of Chicano and Gamel identity as a strategy for his art production. He began his art career in high school as a Chicano student activist. Concurrently, the gay liberation movement of the early 1970s fueled his passion for social justice and helped to develop his skills and enhance his aid advocacy work a decade later. When AIDS surfaced in the Latino artistic community in the 1980s, Joey embraced political advocacy with a passion that included art that reflected its impact on his local community. Joey has been an activist in the HIV-AIDS community and has coordinated multiple programs for people living with HIV-AIDS. He traveled worldwide in his work and last served as a director of global advocacy and partnerships for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Over the past five decades, he has continued to make art and is thrilled to engage with young queer Latinx artists, academics, curators, and activists. His work is considered to be a pioneer influence in the exploration of Chicano queer identity and has been acquired by collectors in major museums in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, and throughout Europe. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Joey. Uh, Why don't we start by talking a little bit about your personal history? What are your roots? Okay, my personal history, roots, uh, born in Los Angeles. Um, My mother was from Los Angeles. My father was from Arizona. Uh, My grandparents on both sides of my family, my maternal and uh, paternal abuelos, were from Mexico. On my father's side, uh, the family all comes from Cananea, which is a very small mining town 
uh, in Sonora, uh, just below the border. So I've got family in Tucson and Ganania. And that's on my father's side. And we're not real, real close. We're in touch, but not real close. Um, and the, otherwise, my family is Chicanos here in LA on my mom's side. Uh, when did you first realize that you were an artist? I think very early on, I whether I thought of myself as an artist or not, all I knew was taking my crayons and just wherever I could, making my mark, doing drawings. I should say, though, that my father was an artist, uh, a, a, you know, frustrated artist. He was, you know, a working class, worked in a factory, but uh, his paintings were in our home when I was growing up. He also made our furniture and in the garage was sort of his studio or workshop. So I grew up always seeing him making art, uh, sometimes sculpture. And I just assumed like, Oh, that's what, that's what daddies do. Um, but realized as I got older that, Oh, not everyone does that. Mm. And when did you first realize you were gay? Um, maybe, my first crush was in first grade, um, which which I've actually made a, an art piece about. Um, and uh, I I always knew, even if I you know I didn't know the word gay, I didn't know I, I wasn't even thinking about you know sex per se, at least not yet. And uh, but I just knew that boys were something that I was always intrigued by and interested in. And then as, as you know, by the time, you know, middle school or grammar school, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade, and the guys were talking about the girls, I, I really came to a conclusion, you know, girls are very, very pretty, you know, but they're pretty like, like a, a beautiful vase of flowers. Boys were cuddly and 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 I wanted to hug them and um there was a different feeling that I had which I realized later on meant oh I'm gay uh, so very early on and when did you come out well you know incrementally it happens in different you know different levels uh I think in sixth grade I told one of my best friends Javier who is still a friend of mine uh that I looked up the word homosexual in the dictionary and I told him, I said, I think I'm homosexual. And he was like, really? Are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And he was like, oh, okay. And that was about the extent of that conversation. Uh, then in high school, I came out in a much larger way. And um, because I was already involved by high school, I was involved with the, uh, the gay liberation movement, uh, as well as the uh, La Huelga and working as a student volunteer for uh, the great boycott, grape and lettuce boycott. And so I had this, this energy about advocacy and, you know, and being out and about. And, um, and yeah, so I, I came out one time on a, on a retreat uh, in my junior year in high school. And, uh, you know, and I had, I had, I got bullied. I got all kinds of uh, uh, negative uh, response, but I also got surprisingly a lot of, positive response. Went to Cathedral High School, uh, all boys, Catholic, right? But there were a lot of cholos and, and, and you know, it's very machismo. And I was surprised to see how many guys uh, that I thought would be turned off by my uh, declaration of being gay 
who said, you know what? You got balls, you know, all right. So you, you, you do what you need to do, that, that kind of thing. And, uh, and that really felt good. What were those early years like? Where, where did you get your support? So, you know, um, when I was a, a freshman and, uh, and sophomore, I and a couple of uh, one of my friends, one of my best friends, again, from high school, Terry Saunders, who was African-American, we, uh, we knew that we were inclined to be gay. So we sort of took it upon ourselves to go out and we, we visited the Metropolitan Community Church the gay church that by Reverend Troy Perry. And uh, we started going to their services, but I also joined their youth group. And so that was for, you know, and, and back then that was really um, very forward thinking and innovative because, you know, at that point in time, the general society said, you know, homosexuals are out to recruit children. So for the MCC church to have a youth group and we were mentored by the elders. And I used to think, wow, gee, these, you know, this grandma that's here, she's so, she's so cool, whatever. That's great that she liked. Well, oh, you know, she's a lesbian. Who knew, right? So I started to realize that there were older adults as well who were proud and out. And um, it really helped with my self-esteem in ways that I really couldn't uh, see the value in until years later. So uh, the then the Gay Community uh, Services Center, the first gay community center that opened up on Wilshire Boulevard. And I was part of the group, youth group, that was facilitated there as well. And we would have raps or rap groups where we would sit on pillows and rap or talk about stuff. And, you know, for a lot of the teens that were in there, there was there were teens that were definitely closeted. There were teens that were getting uh, ostracized by their family, bullied, and we would talk and, you know, support one another. And so, um, and then participating in the gay pride parades. So I had a, a, you know, I realized I'm glad I had all access to this network uh, of support and, uh, and, and developing network of friendships that some of which lasted for many, many years. Right. You had a lot of resources here in the LA area that were not available to other people. That's, um, that's correct. How did your parents respond or react? Well, that's uh, that's nothing. I'll tell you. Well, first of all, my parents. Uh, I'll give you the short version here. The my I loved my parents. Uh, my mom was beautiful. Um, you know, she used to sing to me uh, as a child. She um, she was uh, she loved to dance. She was a dancer. Uh, you know, the, one of the family stories is in the 1950s. Uh, she got an award at the Perez Prado Orchestra. At, I forget what ballroom as La Reina de la Mambo. You know, which which I could see she had the moves. And my dad was the artist, whatever. But uh, he was an ex ex marine. Uh, you know, had been in the military, Purple Heart. And they were a beautiful, loving couple, but like all human beings, they were flawed. They ended up getting a divorce uh, when I was seven years old. And uh, at that point in time, uh, uh, my mom had a nervous breakdown. She ended up uh, being committed, like they did a lot of women back then, uh, institutionalized, uh, did shock therapy on her, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so I lived with different aunts cousins for a while. And by the time my mom came out, uh, I recognized that our roles were reversed. My dad had moved to Arizona. I wasn't in touch with him. And I was now the man of the family, right? Because my mother 
my sister and myself, the three of us. And so, you know, I became a caregiver to my mom and so to speak, you know, making sure she took her medication, whatever. So I had more responsibility. And at a certain point, as I started to think about, you know, my sexuality, I didn't have like a strong mother or father to tell me, no, 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 or you can't do that. Like I witnessed all my other friends having. And when I came out to my mom, it didn't happen the way I wanted it to. I was, I was 15 and uh, she was kind of getting on my case and bawling me out. I was a, you know, petulant, you know, teenager. And uh, she said, you know, you you need to help around here and clean up your room and this and that. She goes, and the way you, the way you dress, she goes, you know, do you, 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 you look like a queer. Is that what you want me to tell people? And I just looked at her. I said, yes, because I am. And the minute I said it, I was Oh God, I wish I could take the words back. She was crushed. She, she really, and, and so I ended up comforting her, but she did say at that moment, I wish I would rather you, I would rather you be a heroin addict. I would rather you be a bank robber than to be that. And, you know, and I, but I recognize that my mother's mental state, her fragility you know, that, that's what was coming out. It wasn't, I know she really continued to love me. And within, it took us a year or two, but, you know, by the time I was 16, my mom had adjusted and she ended up loving my friends. And, you know, when we, we you know, we, uh, we would go places. She would, and she would ask me questions. Uh, so do you want to be a girl? I go, no, 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 I'm a boy. And I like other boys. Okay. I, no, I don't want to be a woman. Um, she would ask me, how do you know when someone is gay? Where I'm on gaydar. I can, she'd say, but, but mijo, what gaydar? Como que gaydar? And I, I said, well, you'll see, mom. You know, we go out to eat. We'd be at a restaurant. The waiter would come and serve us. And I go, mom, there. What? The wait? How do you know? I go, mom, look, he looked at me and just, he just says, he looked at me just a little too long, a little bit more than, you know, she's like, oh, like my goodness, you know? And so it was a learning process for her. Then, uh, you know, again, I'll leave out all the details, but in the, at the age of 23, I went to Arizona and I knew that I would I see, visit aunts and I knew I'd probably see my dad. And of course, the minute I arrived, my aunt said, your dad is waiting. Would you want to see him? I said, sure. And he says, Let, let's talk. We went in the truck, went for a ride. And he was, oh, I, he was apologizing for all this stuff about what, how he didn't stay in touch. And I said, you know what, dad? I said, that, that's fine. I said, no problem. Uh, I said, but before we go on, there's one thing I want to tell you. I said, uh, I said, I'm gay. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And he looked at me and he said, really? He said, you know what? I thought so. <laughs> and I said, oh. And he said, I just have one question for you. Did you, have you ever let anyone bully you or ostracize, you know, be mean to you or whatever, or beat you up because you're gay? I said, no, I never have. And I, I don't intend to. And he's like, good. And I thought to myself, that's my dad. So those were the initial kinds of things. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, the, the times I saw my dad after that, I mean, he, he met my boyfriend at the time and, you know, he was, he was cool with it. And like I said, my mom was, she loved all my friends and, um, yeah, so that was a relatively easy because at the same time that I was experiencing that I had other friends who were being kicked out of their houses, you know, uh, all of the above, you know, their, their dad would beat them up. Their brothers would beat them up. They, you know, it just, was a very, very uh, macho culture uh, for a lot of the other Chicanos that I knew. My cousin committed suicide around that time as well. Yeah. But I was wondering what, what happened when you graduated from high school? Where did you, what happened next after high school? Well, after high school, a couple things. One is that um, I, uh, I had at the time what I, I think it was called an, uh, California Academic State Scholarship, where they would take the top five percent of SAT scores or something and and offer you scholarships. So I was accepted at UC Berkeley and Immaculate Heart College. And uh I chose Immaculate Heart College, you know, in Hollywood, small liberal arts, formerly all women's um uh college, because I had visited Berkeley and felt it was very overwhelming. I said, my God, the Berkeley campus is its own city. And I said, I don't know anyone, whatever. Whereas in LA, I had a circle of support, friends. And plus, I was a devotee of Sister Creta Kent and the Immaculate Heart Art Department. As well as uh, at the age of 17, my mom and sister, my mom had decided she wanted to move from our old apartment that we were living in, in Highland Park, about half a block away. They built some new um, apartments. And I said to her, mom, could I like, I'm tired of moving all these years. I said, how about if you ask the landlord, Mr. Booth, and I get Terry to be my roommate, if we just stay in the apartment? And she said, okay. And Mr. Booth, the landlord said, okay. So at 17, I had my own apartment, which I had already been living in. So my, instead of me moving out from home, my mom and sister moved out. So as you can imagine having, I was the only one in my circle that had an apartment. So it became the meeting place for all my friends, and, you know, getting together and, you know, and parties and food and, uh, you know, and just lots, lots of good times and laughter and fun and, you know, and then crazy stuff too. So, so that mean, happened right after. And then I, I, I attended Immaculate Heart for three years. Um, and what happened while you were there at Immaculate Heart? 
Well, a couple of things. One is uh, there were a couple of revelations for me personally. Um, I, I used to say to folks, you know, I didn't realize how brown I was until I was put up against a white background. Um, and I'm, I'm not, not that, you know, most the vast majority of the, uh, uh, you know, people enrolled at Immaculate Heart were white. The vast majority were women. Um, I, it's not like it was totally negative. It was actually very engaging. I also told somebody, and they didn't believe me, but I, 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 I think you'll understand this. You know, growing up in our culture, and this was part of my art making strategy, whatever, I never saw myself. I never saw Latinos on TV. Oh, I know there was, you know, Ricky Ricardo, right? And I love Lucy. And, and that was about it. There was also Bill Dana, the comedian on Ed Sullivan, who, you know, hello, my name is Jose Jimenez. He was the astronaut that was the dumb Mexican, right? That was it. But when I went to Mac at Heart, I kept going, wow, all these people here, all these women look familiar. Well, because they look like people that I saw on TV commercials. They look like people I saw in magazines. They look like people I saw in the movies. And, and somebody said, oh, come on. I go, no, really? I said, nobody here looks like my cousins, my uncles, my tias. Not, you know. So um, there, there was that. And then also being gay, I, you know, and already fired up with, you know, the gay liberation front, whatever, like it, it took some adjustment with the Immaculate Heart, but I did find my circle of other gay and lesbian uh, students and uh, particularly in the art department. And, uh, and it, it was great. It was very wonderful. I would have stayed. I'll just admit this now. I had to drop out after three years because I had made a mistake where I hadn't every year you had to get your scholarship renewed and, you know, you had to maintain a grade point average, which I did, but you, you had to, at that point in time, you had to fill out a form and mail one copy to Sacramento and then another copy to somewhere in LA and another copy to the, the city or something. And, and I thought I had done them all, but I had missed one. And so I was already attending classes when I got a letter that said, unfortunately, since that was not received, your scholarship won't be renewed this year, but you can reapply next year. And so I, I had to, I'm the third year college dropout, you know, that, so. Um, what did you do after that? What did I do after that? Wow. What didn't I do after that? Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's so many different th things that uh, occurred. I was involved with the, you know, queer and gay community here in LA, but I was also, it was the 1970s. So I was going up to San Francisco. Uh, I should also preface that, uh, in in uh, high school, uh, the same year before I told my mom I was gay, um, uh, I had I was just feeling really pressured with the responsibilities at home, as well as some of the bullying that was going on at school, and uh, I ran away from home. My friend Terry and I we hitchhiked to San Francisco, and um, and you know and, and so anyway, I hitchhiked four times up there. But going up there, I recognize that, you know what, there's a whole world out there, a whole big world. And there's a lot of different options. There's a lot of gay people, queer people, lesbians, et cetera. And I, and I realized that, you know, I, I do have, uh, you know, uh, 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 a future. And uh, so when my friend Danny moved to San Francisco, Hey, I always had a place to stay, always had a place to crash. And there was a, a group of us, about 10 of us, from Cathedral High School that all kind of came up together or shortly after 
graduation. And we, we called ourselves Las Escandalosas. We shortened it to the Scons. So that was our, that was our gang name, Scons. We were the Scons. And uh, we'd all go up to San Francisco. We'd go up there for Pride. We'd go up there for Memorial Day weekend, you know, whatever the occasion, um, you know, got to see Harvey Milk speak, et cetera. And uh, so I was going back and forth, San Francisco, LA, and loving it. And then doing art with the uh, Chicano queer artists that I knew from LA as well. And uh, yeah, and then in 1980, I moved to New York for a year. And that, that's another pivotal shift. Uh, so, Joey, what did you do after you left Immaculate Heart College? Uh, after, I met, after I left Immaculate Heart College, I was uh, networking and having fun and, and partying, going back and forth to San Francisco, as well as engaging with a group of artists uh, and my, my friends from high school that we all came out together, about 10 of us. And we referred to ourselves as uh, Las Escandalosas. And we, uh, we would, you know, go to clubs and party and then go up to San Francisco. My friend Danny moved up there. He had an apartment. So we always had a place to crash. And uh, it was, it was uh, really a good, fun time. Uh, in 1980, uh, I decided to move to New York for a couple of reasons. And uh, my sister, who was in her third year at UC Santa Barbara, uh, called me up and said, you know, I'm thinking that I need to take a break from school. How about if I move with you to New York? I was thrilled. I said, yes, let's do it. So my sister and I moved up there. Uh, our first night there, we put our bags down at my friend Victor Durazo's uh, apartment. Um, my Victor Durazo was a friend from LA. He was an artist as well. And he said, let's you know, hurry up, freshen up. He says, we need to grab a taxi. We're going to Brooklyn. Uh, to go see uh, Dan Guerrero. And uh, I, he said, Carlos and Elsa are in town. And I said, Carlos and Elsa? I said, Carlos Almaraz? He goes, yeah. And Elsa Flores, his wife, our, our girlfriend at the time. And uh, we, we thought it was funny because here, here I had to move to New York in order to, to meet uh, Carlos and Elsa. I knew of them from the LA circles and Chicano art circles. And, uh, but yet we were all there in New York. And that was our, our first night meeting uh, Dan Guerrero, uh, Carlos and Elsa. At that time, you could count the number of Mexicans in New York on one hand. We were a rare, exotic uh, entity. Um, my, 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 and my sister only stayed for four months and then decided to come back. Uh, I stayed for a, a little under a year and then I came back. But during that year, a lot transpired, a lot happened. One, in terms of our you know, Chicano identity, as my sister used to say, my, my sister was a very beautiful woman, you know, and I'm not being biased, it's just the fact. And every day in New York, with New Yorkers being so, you know, in your face and direct, uh, people would stop her out of the street. And so, oh, my God, you're so beautiful. You have such beautiful eyes. And she would say, you know, uh, they would say, what are you, Italian? No. Uh, Jewish? No. Polish? No. You know, they would guess everything under the sun except Mexican, uh, which was a, a enlightening for her because she said, you know, at UC Santa Barbara, where it's mostly, you know, white student body, she said, I could walk across the campus naked. And then these guys, all they were interested in was, you know, surfer girl types. Right. So that was interesting for her uh, on that level. Uh, but the other thing is that for me, I, I had two goals, uh, 
to when I moved to New York that I set for myself. One was that I was going to exhibit my art. My other goal was that I wanted to see John and Yoko. And I thought, even if I just see John Lennon and Yoko Ono walking through Central Park and I can wave to them, I thought, okay, goal accomplished. Instead, I was four blocks away the night that John was killed and, you know, ran out there uh, in the freezing cold and uh, the ambulance had just taken the body away and stood out there for eight hours and witnessed the city of New York going into a mass depression over that whole time. It was a, a pivotal moment. And for me, I also thought, gosh, the 1980s are going to be so different. This is how they're starting. 78, we saw the assassination you know, of Harvey Milk. And here, two years later, John Lennon. And I was like, what is happening? What I had didn't know at that time was that uh, HIV and AIDS was just around the corner in 81. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I was already infected there in New York in 1980. So moved back to LA in 81. And the first stirrings of the quote-unquote gay cancer were sort of, you know, filtering around uh, around the community. And obviously things were changing. And like I said, the 80s were very different from the 1970s. I don't know if that answered your question, but... It sure does. What? How did you find out you were HIV positive? Did you get sick or was it just through a routine test? Well, I, I didn't get tested until 1989. Uh, when the test came out in the mid 80s or late 80s, um, there was uh, uh, around the community, there was very little, there didn't seem to be much value in getting a test, uh, you know, unless you were already symptomatic and, and had, you know, medical issues and you had to get your financial uh, house in order. Um because if you got tested and you tested positive, at that point, it was a virtual death sentence. And so I knew, gosh, if, if I don't know that I want to know if I'm positive, because I would just get depressed. I was like, why, why would I want to? But then in about 89, the, there was a, a change in the prevailing thought by the medical community that if you got tested, even though there's not treatment or a cure for HIV, there were certain medications and clinical trials going on that you could enroll in. And you could, you could perhaps stave off the onset of right. AIDS, right? And I right. thought, okay, that makes sense. So that's when I got tested. And when I did, Dr. Rogalski, uh, my doctor said, okay, the first thing we want to do is let's figure out, uh, if we can, how long you've been infected. And he asked, he said, you know, when a person seroconverts uh, to being infected, they usually will experience experience uh, a mysterious little bit of uh, sickness or illness. It seems like a, a bad case of the flu that kind of comes and goes for two or three days. When he asked me if anything like that had ever happened, I said, uh, yes, uh, only once. I was living in New York in 1980. I woke up one morning and I had hives. I was covered in hives. My face, my body, I, I didn't know what it was. It totally freaked me out. I looked like a monster. Uh, and I, I called into work. I was working at Conrad's, the department store in Midtown. And my uh, my supervisor didn't believe me. She said, oh, yeah, hives. Sure. Uh-huh. Okay, you're going to take the day off. I get it. Uh, 
I said, no, really, really, truly. And I went to a doctor. I did, you know, I didn't have money. I didn't have uh, uh, medical insurance. And uh, the doctor said, you know, you could be allergic to one of 3000 things, blah, blah, blah. It costs lots of testing, and which I didn't. So I was uh, forlorn. I didn't know what to do, but it, it went away within, within 24 hours, the hives all went away. And so the following two days later, I show up to work. My supervisor said to me, uh, oh, I see you got over your hives. I said, well, yes, I did actually. And, and then as I was there folding rugs in the you know the department that had the rugs, um, I could feel my arm getting warm, really hot. And I looked and I saw the hives were coming back on my arm. So I went to go show my supervisor. I said, look, and she said to me, oh my God, go home, get out of here. She was looking at my face. I had broken out on my face as well. So she believed me that I had hives. When I relayed that story to Dr. Rogalski, he said, uh, I can guarantee you that's when you zero converted. You were infected there in New York, 1980, you know, uh, in the midst of, you know, everything that was going on and HIV was, you know, permeating the gay community there. And, uh, and so at the time in 89, the thought was you get infected and you've got 10 years before you get AIDS. So I did the math, 1980, here it is 89. So I had one year to live. That was my prevailing thought. And um, I, 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 I thought that uh, I, was I was not going to live. And uh, that, was, uh, that did a whole psychological number on me for a couple of years. But I did enroll in clinical trials here in LA. And it devastated me knowing that I was positive. And my devastation wasn't out of uh, you know, fear of dying for myself, but I just couldn't help thinking that, oh my God, you know, my, my mother and my sister, uh, my mother is going to lose her, her, her only son, her firstborn. And she had very already a frail mental state. And then my sister would lose her only brother. And then my sister would also be left to have to deal with managing our mother's mental state. So that was my uh, thing. Anyway, as it turns out, I have outlived them both. And so I, I take some comfort in knowing that neither of them had to deal with the loss of their son and brother. Right. Um, um, what were you doing art-wise at that time? Or, or were you still doing art when you found out you were positive? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was. And, and so my, my work, my art, my strategy for making art has always been exploring my uh, my uh, Chicano identity and my gay identity and where the two intersected or overlapped or clashed. Um, you know, I took inspiration uh, when I was in college from Frida Kahlo, uh, which when I saw her work, it moved me in ways I hadn't uh, ever been moved by art before. And I thought it's so personal. And the aspect of her work that I liked was uh, the confessional aspect. She put it all out there. She put her birth right, right, right in her art. She she put her her physical pain uh, manifested in these surrealistic looking uh, images. The the deer with the with the arrows. I I the broken column. Uh, her heartbreak. You know, uh, with uh, Diego Rivera. And so I took that as a key, as well as the feminist mantra at the time that the personal is political. So my work was always autobiographical. It was personal. 
I, I did, uh, you know, uh, renderings of uh, individuals that I knew, myself, my partners, my lovers, the gay community, et cetera. And so once HIV hit, uh, it was inevitable that my work uh, started to become about HIV and AIDS and, and, and shift. Um, when I was in New York, I it did exhibit my art. I did three paintings called Chicanos Invade New York. That was the series. And they were three three paintings. Uh, one was called um, uh, Making Tortillas in Soho. Uh, the other was Reading the Local Paper, in which I'm standing there with the New York Post with the headlines of John Lennon shot dead. And, uh, and the last was Searching for Burritos. And that had me, my sister, my friends, uh, standing in front of the Guggenheim in a blizzard, but where we were looking like we we're on a search trying to find burritos, which we could not. So humor has always been an element in my work as well. Um, I, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it sure did. That's how it, uh, so it came into your work. And then interesting, you became an AIDS activist and started to work with uh, one of the biggest HIV AIDS organizations in the country. Yeah, so uh, so uh, a couple of things in uh, you know in the in the eighties, I was working as a case manager at the Center for the Partially Sighted in Santa Monica. It's a low vision uh, uh, optometric and rehabilitation center where, unlike organizations like the Braille Institute, where the focus is on the legally blind or totally blind uh, and who use vision substitution like reading Braille, like using a white cane, um, the Center for the Partially Sighted, as it sounds, uh, seeks to, um, to enhance one's residual vision or partial sight. Because most people that are experiencing vision problems were not born visually impaired. They were born with full vision at the age of 60 or as they, you know, 70, as they age, they start to develop problems that interferes with their ability to read or to drive or do all of the things that continue to help them function. So um, at that point in time, um, you know, when AIDS hit the community, uh, everyone was doing, I, I thought, whatever they could do. And I felt like, okay, it's wartime. And I recognized that what I could do was uh well it was it was sparked by seeing my client who came in for me to do an intake and it was the first client i had who had aids related sight loss and it was different from all the other clients that i had people that their the uh their average uh um age was you know around 60 to 70 years old they had macular degeneration they might have some you know floaters peripheral vision problems you know, and that could be adjusted with magnifier, special glasses, et cetera, uh, training, and they could be highly functioning. They got counseling and five years later, they're coming in and they're, you know, uh, doing really well and they're very independent. Here, you had AIDS-related sight loss. Your average life expectancy was six months. The average uh, age range was, you know, 25 to 40 um, and at the time, you know, when you, it was end stage AIDS, when you started to go blind, usually from CMV retinitis or toxoplasmosis. And at that point in time, a person had already had capacity sarcoma. They had cancer. They had wasting syndrome. They were weak. They were in pain. They had, you know, 10 doctor's appointments to keep. They had, you know, uh, 17 different, you know, medications and bottles and pills. It, it was, and so for many of them, uh, going blind was like the last straw. So we developed a program there that I coordinated 
uh, in which we uh, adjusted, and it was called the HIV and Vision Loss Program. And what I did at that, at that time is I had called around to all the organizations that had sprung up to work with uh, HIV and AIDS, including AIDS Healthcare Foundation, um, the, the AIDS Center in Pasadena, uh, APLA, and asked them, what do you do when you have someone who's visually impaired? And they said, oh, my God, we don't know what to do. Even the support groups that they had at that time for people that would discuss about HIV and AIDS, you know, mostly gay men. Um, when one of the members of the support group started to go blind, they would get ostracized. Or the, the other group members would say, you know what, I can't even deal with talking about that. There was the fear around it. it was, so I, I was facilitating and running that group. At the, at the same time, though, um, you know, in, in 1986, there was the uh, Proposition 64, which was the Lyndon LaRouche uh, um, proposition, which called for quarantining all people with HIV. And that scared the you know what out of me. I was just like, uh, you know, horrified. And, uh, and walking through Silver Lake, I saw a flyer on a telephone pole. It said, stop the AIDS quarantine, come to a meeting. And I did. And that's where I met activists like Michael Weinstein, Phil Wilson, Chris Brownlee, Richard Starr, Paul Coleman, and a, and a bunch of others. And there were like, you know, queer punk rockers and some, uh, you know, a couple of um, ministers with their collars. And, um, and we organized and I was a volunteer for that group to then start calling voters, trying to uh, get people to vote against Prop 64, uh, which, you know, long story short, we ended up defeating, uh, which, which was great. Um, the, the, the group then incorporated uh, after that win as AIDS Hospice Foundation, because what was necessary at the time was hospice care. People were dying in the hallways of the county general. Uh, people were being kicked out of their apartments. Uh, it was just horrible. And so um, the first hospice, AIDS-specific hospice, uh, named after Chris Brownlee, was opened. And then within two years, they reincorporated as AIDS Healthcare Foundation. And they started to focus on treatment, uh, care and treatment in clinical settings where, without any moral judgment and uh, et cetera, and, and advocacy. And so I went to work uh, in 95 to 97 for two years. I had to leave the HIV and vision loss program because my own mental state, it was so draining and I was getting depressed. It was really difficult. But I, I worked for AHF in two, for two years as pharmacy services coordinator. Uh, in which we had four clinics at the time, all in LA. And then, you know, fast forward. And in 2004, I went back to AIDS Healthcare Foundation and I worked at the Carl Bean House Hospice as activities coordinator um, and volunteer coordinator there. And uh, after 17 years at AHF, I retired. Yay. Uh, last, last November and, uh, and the last four years, uh, working at AHF, I was the director of global advocacy and partnerships. So that included five global bureaus, 44 countries, over 1.7 million people in care. I mean, the journey from, you know, the 90s where we had four clinics to now dealing with 44 countries um, was amazing. And um, anyway, I the reason I retired a little bit early last November was because my art career was taken off and I couldn't do both. And uh, so that's my story. Interesting. Well, you've made very significant contributions to the HIV AIDS community and are definitely a part of that history in terms of the LA area. And were you producing art when you were doing all this work in the HIV AIDS community? 
Well, yes, I was. And, uh, and, you know, I, I had my, I had different series and uh, different uh, uh, mediums that I was working in. And uh, I also in the mid nineties was on the board of directors of Viva, the organization for gay and lesbian Latino artists which was some of the most fabulous five years that, that I like to recall. Um, I had the pleasure of working with um, Ruben Esparza and uh, Luis Alfaro, Joe Fuereke, um, uh, Monica Palacios, Teddy Sandoval. And we would do projects that were, you know, you know gay and lesbian, Latino, because that's how we called ourselves back then, uh, identified, but also works that were addressing HIV and AIDS. So uh, we did a, a calendario, a, a calendar where I did an image that was a parody of the health, Jesus Alguera uh, Aztec mythology images that are on, on calendars from all the restaurants and, you know, and bakeries in, in East LA. And uh, I did one that showed a, a variation of an Indio uh, with um, uh, taking care of a young uh, uh, Latino or Indian. And it said, Apoyo tu hermanos con VIH and support your brothers with HIV. And we did that and distributed those calendars to, you know, uh, organizations like, you know, Bienestar and, and, uh, and LA County and, uh, you know, to, to kind of reduce or address the stigma still within the Latino community. But I also then did a, uh, and this is something I'm, I'm, you know, kind of proud of uh, that there was an organization that I don't think it any exists any longer uh, back in the day called CORE that used to uh, be in Hollywood that worked specifically with the street hustlers uh, and sex workers, um, the, you know, in Hollywood and, you know, mostly gay uh, sex workers. But there was a lot of Latinos who were doing um, sex for survival. They did not identify as gay. They were, you know, they were from Mexico, Central America. Uh, they didn't have much education, quite frankly. And uh, and a lot of the information about HIV and AIDS was in English. A lot of the information that was coming out uh, was geared towards the gay community. So this population, even though they were at risk for their occupational risk of having sex, uh, they didn't think that or were inclined to look at stuff that was geared towards gay, right? And so uh, we knew we had to do something to try to reach them. And um, and one day I was at the uh, uh, the uh, Sunset Junction Street Fair in Silver Lake, and I, I came across a copy of what was called Chicos Modernos. It was a little comic book, and uh, and the illustrations were done by uh, an artist named Bruce Rapp. And anyway, I loved it. It was a comic book, and it had you know characters, and they were. And they were Latinos and it was very easy to read. It was in Spanish and they were, you know, talking about HIV, this, that, and the other. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I, you know what, I should be doing something like this. This is what I should be doing. And, uh, and about four months later, uh, I get a call from my friend, Steven Munoz, who was one of the scans from Cathedral. Uh, and he said, hey, have you ever seen Chicos Modernos? I said, yes, I have. I, I think it's great. He goes, well, hey, that's, you know, I'm working, I'm helping out Bill at CORE. We're, you know, I'm the one that wrote the script. I was, oh, he goes, yeah. So, you know, we were wondering, we were going to do volume two. And Bruce, the artist, is too sick now. So could you, would you be interested in illustrating it? I said, yes, absolutely. 
So I did volumes two, three, and four of Chicos Padernos and extended the storylines with the characters. You know, and it kind of follows like, you know, like the tradition of the photonovelas and and, and comic strips, you know, uh, and and they would do um they they're going to do presentations at the at the gay bars, gay Latino bars, and they talk about, you know, safe sex, they talk about Chicos Padernos, they pass it out to everyone. And it it was uh, considered successful. Uh, we would go back and check with the bartenders and they would say, you know what? We did not find one copy in the trash. That meant people took them home. You know, they, they were not threatening. There wasn't anything in there that, that screamed, you know, gay, 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 which, you know, that was the intent. We wanted the information to get to that population. And, uh, and from what I understand, they ended up, it was a, a LA County grant, but they ended up having, uh, oh, also, by the way, it was uh, a, uh, HIV funding that fell under the uh, the uh, restrictions of the Jesse Helms Amendment, which meant that you couldn't promote homosexuality. So here I was doing these illustrations in a comic book format in Spanish, and I couldn't show gay men having sex. I couldn't show men kissing. I had, so I, I really had to try to you know figure out how to make this interesting and then talk about these things without illustrating it. And uh, as I've said before to folks, I looked at it as okay, what would David Lynch do? Uh, you know, to me, I thought David Lynch was uh, a, a, mas a master of taking very banal subject matter and sort of adding an interesting twist to it. But uh, Joey, you have had such a fascinating life. Thank you so much for joining us for this interview. Uh, let me ask you this. You have done so many significant things. How do you want to be remembered by future generations? Wow, okay. Um, you know, I think just overall, and it might sound cliche, but just uh, that I try to do my best uh, to serve. And, and, and I don't mean to, you know, to serve or to slay the way it's been used today by, you know, queer youth, uh, but to serve the community, to serve humanity. And uh, I, I think that's particularly important given the current zeitgeist and climate we find ourselves in you know, with the Supreme Court decisions that are going on. I think that the struggle for uh, equity, for acceptance, for community is going to continue. Uh, and, and hopefully it, there's a strong, strong uh, advocacy with the newer generations. And I hope I contribute to that somehow. You will always be a force to be remembered, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joey. Sure. Thank you, George. Thank you for joining us on Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. Please continue to tune into our series as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx Art. Also, don't forget to visit the website www.latinoarte.com in order to view the beautiful array of Chicano Latinx art that is available to add to your own collection. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.